And I remember waking up and we all went downstairs and, and it was a lot of, I think people were a little bit nervous about getting there on time. Um, and so there was sort of nervous coffees and breakfasts happening and then we said, oh, we better get a move on. And so we sort of went outside and jumped in taxis and, of course, Sydney morning traffic, there's quite a lot of it. Natalie Tyler, long-time Redbubble employee, one of the very early ones to join the company, one of the first 11, in fact, 11 long-time employees invited to Sydney for the event. It's the morning of May 16, 2016, a very big day that's been a long time coming for Redbubble. Natalie and others, including the CEO's mum, arrive at 20 Bridge Street, Sydney, the Australian Securities Exchange, in anticipation for what's happening this morning. Redbubble's initial public offering. Kind of walk in and there's big displays and things and then they sort of had a room to the side which was I guess the more ceremonial uh, part of you know where they do the presentations and things and where they have the actual bell. Um, It was a lot more casual, the introduction to it was a lot more casual than I thought it was going to be. We had a a guy from the Stock Exchange who stood up and sort of explained. uh, The important part of this thing is of course the time on the top right there. So we've got 10 seconds to go. The tradition is we all count down, so hopefully you'll join with me uh, in that tradition uh, right up to the bell ringing. Uh, an important part of this screen also is the IAP. Or I thought it was going to be a much more formal feeling um, to the experience, but it, it had a warmth to it that was quite different to what I expected. Um, and there were a lot of people there that I didn't necessarily know very well as well there were I think you know Martin has always included people not just the employees from the business but people who are are investors who've been there from the start obviously his family members and uh, the other there was I think um, yeah we had yeah there were 11 of uh, staff wise who had come from various parts of the world as well it wasn't just me from England there's people that had come from the states as well so um, yeah it was it was a nice thing to be a part of it was great the rope attached to the clapper of the ceremonial bell, Martin Hosking rings in the third company he's either led or founded that's publicly listed. First Looksmart on the Nasdaq last century, Aconex on the ASX in 2014, that's since been bought by Oracle, and now Redbubble in 2016. Martin's flanked by a pull-up sign saying, We stand for artists, while a soft toy of the Redbubble mascot, Mr Baxter, sits on the lectern. Welcome to the final episode of Scale Up Season 2 from LaunchVic. In the first series with Culture Amp, we ended on the future aspirations for the company. In this season's last instalment on Redbubble, there's a consolidation of the work started in 2006 and 10 years later, the IPO. If this is your first time listening, please go back and check out the series. Have a listen to the season about Culture Amp. Leave a review where you're listening and please share the show with a friend or colleague who's into startups and fast-growing businesses. 
and check out launchvic.org or on the major social platforms. LaunchVic is Victoria's startup ecosystem development agency helping to build the infrastructure for entrepreneurs and startups here in the state. Go to the website for more information, events and studies, launchvic.org or check the show notes for links. At the opening bell, Redbubble is valued at about $288 million and raises $30 million from the new shares. Actually, we'll, Richard will go first. I'll get chairman first. Right priority. <laughs> and Richard is positively beaming. Marks a new chapter for Redbubble but also marks a significant achievement. The emergence of a truly global, Australian-based, ASX-listed consumer company, a feat that we're incredibly proud of. Then, Martin. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Firstly, uh, we have here the first 11 employees from Redbubble who are continuing to work with the company. Your representatives of those people who've built the company over the last 10 years. I'm pleased to share a moment with you, but I'm also sharing it with all of those people who've contributed to the growth and development of Redbubble over the last 10 years. The second thing I wanted to note in that context is what we're building is a company of enduring value. That phrase sounds a little bit corporate, but I don't think it's corporate to any of us. What it means is that we believe this company is doing something of significant value and will continue to, to do that for the long term. In that context, I was, a bit, I was a little bit embarrassed, but beside me is a banner. It says, we stand for artists. Uh, there's, two, there's two versions to this story. The true one is that when we went to find our new, brand, new, new banner with our new corporate logo and our new mission, we couldn't find it because it hadn't been produced yet. So we had to pull out the old one. But the old one is still as true now as it was then. It still talks about what's at the heart of Redbubble. It's allowing those independent artists to reach the consumers who want their stuff. I asked Martin about his decision to create and include a first 11 in the IPO. This is born from Australia's and Martin's love of cricket. Typically, the people who get involved in the IPO celebrations are normally the the board and then they'll invite the bankers and the accountants. I said that the IPO for us is the end of a very long process and the people who should be involved in that should be, I'll just pick the first 11 employees regardless of their role in the company and most of them are actually pretty junior employees and we just went there as well. And that was sort of indicative of the fact that the IPO, I saw it as the, as the, as a sort of a, a step along a long journey and it should not be, it should be everybody on that journey. The IPO was not something which was, you know, in a way it was you know, it was facilitated and reflected the work of the accountants and the lawyers and the board, but ultimately it only occurs because of the, the team which has been along for the first, you know, 11 years. Getting here was never a certainty. The GFC, staff changes, cost of suppliers, just making the product and early funding scrambles had kept the company vigilant and, as one staff member said to me, constantly changing things to get better. Internally, unrecognisable over short periods of times in terms of how things are getting done. Even two years before the IPO, Redbubble was reporting progress at public company standards in preparation for the listing. Natalie Tyler again on her feeling among the small crowd 
at the ASX watching on. Like knowing how much work had gone into it and how it wasn't always a given that we were going to end up in this place. Um, just seeing how amazingly chuffed Martin was and how proud he was and knowing that um, in some way you'd kind of helped kick things along along the way. Uh, it was just a really proud moment and I, it was just like on the face of things an IPO is quite a formalisation of a business. It's a, you know, it's a quite a, it pushes you into areas of compliance and, and getting your act together and becoming, potentially becoming quite a different business. But it reassured me at that moment that there was still the heart and soul was there and I could I was witnessing it I could see how much passion and love was behind the business from everybody that was there so it was kind of um, although it was over very quickly the bell ringing and the cupcake eating and the champagne quaffing and the legging it to the airport it was it was a, a really nice moment a great thing to be a part of. Natalie had jumped on a plane from her base in England to be there quickly after an invite popped up in her email She'd landed, got to Sydney, partied the night before with the others invited then, was back in Melbourne, head office for another shindig in the afternoon of the listing. Natasha Scarno, who joined early on to sort out the accounting practices, was also in the first 11. All the hard work has sort of has come to fruition and is something that, you know, Australia should be proud of, not just you know, globally, but even for Australia specifically, because it was created by three Australian individuals with amazing um, inspiration and amazing vision. It's been a true success story, I think. Mm. And a lot has got to go to, you know, Martin and his vision and the fact that they started this company never with having profit in mind. I think they were they always wanted to have the purpose of creating something meaningful for the world and bring art and creativity and individualism to the world what makes the difference is the journey that i've been through because you know having worked for company that they're already there you feel like you're not there to make that difference and that growth like your role you're replaceable um but having and i suppose that's why i stay here for 10 you know, almost 10 years is um i feel loyal Almost, I feel that he's like almost family. One part of the IPO, an important part, as Martin told me, was creating liquidity for the existing shareholders. Paul Van Zeller, one of the founders of the company, describes the moment he was told about what they were suddenly worth. I'd mentioned Redbubble's current market capitalisation to him when we were speaking at his place. Yeah, look, it freaks me out and makes me think that is just absolutely so amazing and I almost can't believe it. And you're telling me these numbers right now. This is the first time I'm actually hearing them from another person because I don't engage in conversation with anybody about them or where the numbers are at. So, Sorry so, to have so it. thank you. No, I appreciate it. And it, and it all and even when the IPO first landed, I got called into the office at um, um, Natasha Mandy. And she brought me in, and I was doing a bit of work for her. And she brought me in, and she told me, oh, "Okay, um, Redbubble's gone public, and your shares are this, and you have this much money." And I just sat there, and I went, "Are you serious?" And it was like the biggest golden shock of sunlight that could you could throw at somebody's head. And she did that to me in that particular moment, and that was the most incredible moment for me because I didn't follow. I don't follow numbers. I don't follow where it was at. 
and I just I just didn't follow it. So that was the most extraordinary like half an hour of my life, which changed my life, which is fantastic. So um, yeah, so I, the gravity of it is is absolutely amazing. It's incredible, and you know I I always you know that's why I have to say Martin Hoskin has changed so many people's lives, especially mine. You know what I mean? I um and you know I'm yeah it's amazing it's incredible and I have loves and passions for other things in life and um, what this has done is is it's enabled me to action these other loves and passions and um, and that's incredible and I re- and I'm grateful for that every day and I feel so lucky it's like oh in this lifetime that's me I'm that guy yeah that's incredible that's so amazing so very aware of it on a daily basis and never take anything for granted at all. We had a good board. Chair of the board, Richard Causey. It was a very good advisory board and rolling sleeves up board and being involved in the decisions. We needed to get the board, its practices, the governance practices needed to be capable of becoming a public company. We wanted to get them well in tune. So we even two years before we were doing full public company audit and work on the company making sure that our systems and processes meant that we weren't having to chase our tails in there we built and Martin and really built out the executive team uh, in being a very strong executive team and so when we started the IPO process uh, uh, we were able to actually take Martin out of the business not entirely, but fairly significantly, along with the CFO, to help drive that, and we didn't miss a beat. And in many of the other organisations that I've served and advised, going public has been nearly a near-death experience for them because it is so damn difficult and so time-consuming uh, that and very distracting, and we didn't have that. So we, we, just, we were very, very deliberate uh, around building a company that was capable of being independent and surviving on, on uh, as a listed company. So why is it so difficult? Just... Oh my gosh, how to, <laughs> how to describe it to someone that hasn't been through it. The due diligence process. Okay. Uh, so you've got a whole bunch of advisors and every statement that you make in the prospectus needs to be backed up. Every statement. Jeez, and I think the prospectus, last time I looked at it, was about 150 pages. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So you imagine that with the deck that goes to prove everyone, you're looking at uh, a a thousand some odd pages that has been double and triple checked. Then there's the storyline. So you want to say all of these things about the company and then you've got to go back to how do we demonstrate and prove that? And then there's just all the conversation. So we had a pre-IPO round with with some fundraisers. So all of that takes time. Then going and marketing and speaking to potential investors, getting cornerstones, um, then hiring your and as part of that you then interview uh, a, a, a range of brokers who are going to take you you then uh, take you to the market you then design your joint lead environment because it is so all consuming it can be all consuming you can often drop performance we did have a tough time after it I think we uh, we made some ex post we made some errors in our forecasting which meant we didn't meet our IPO forecasting I think that's good. Some, some good lessons in there, but actually it didn't come from poor performance. The performance just didn't stop. The company rocked and rolled all the way through. It was more of, of, a, of a, you know, if I went back, I would not make the same, same 
way of constructing a forecast for an IPO. Obviously, Redbubble was prepared. The evidence of those involved is a nod to that, and the company's actions in the lead-up to the partial exit of the IPO as well. Though, according to Dr. Kate Cornick, CEO of LaunchVic, many startups don't have a plan for an exit. One, we know that not enough Victorian founders are, have an exit strategy in mind. Whereas in the States, a much higher proportion of founders, when they start in an early stage, have a very clear exit strategy in mind. I, I think we need to do more to encourage founders to have an exit strategy, because if you've got an exit strategy, you can actually have a more sophisticated discussion with your investors, because ultimately they want that exit. They want to know that point that they're going to have their capital released, hopefully, with a 10x return or more. Um, secondly, Startups around the world are brought out by large businesses and you look at the groups like General Electric, GE, uh, the Pfizer, the Medtech companies, the telcos, they've been an engine room of buying startups for many, many years. And so they are really great companies to, to sell to and, and, and if your exit strategy is I'm building this company to sell a, to sell the business and have an exit and one way of that exit is a large corporate, that's fantastic. It then goes on and helps that corporate be more successful. If your exit strategy is I've got a vision that I want to be the CEO of a NASDAQ listed or ASX listed company and I believe that my company will be of greater value to the society, to our investors, to the employees. If we maintain ownership, then that's the right path, which is why, to go back to the first point, you need a clear exit strategy. I think one of the things that I would say that we see in Australia is the corporates that I see purchasing startups are not doing it at the same level of sophistication as some of the big global companies. So I think what you can see, and I have seen at times, excellent examples of corporates purchasing and working with startups. There have been many examples that have come across our desk that um, corporates have either worked very closely with or purchased startups and then constrained the innovation because of the overlay of bureaucracy and process. And that's really sad to see when you see businesses that have huge potential being stifled by a conservative corporate environment that isn't allowing that and I think that is a great shame and we, we, we do need to, to to change that. I'm not quite sure what the levers are but um, without a doubt um, our corporate environment is more conservative than the US corporate environment. To get the IPO underway Redbubble hired Morgans, the firm that would help take them public along with a couple of others to help as well. I went to meet Ivor Reese. he's their senior analyst who'd worked with them on the listing. Morgans have a checklist. It's an internal checklist of things they look for in companies during the due diligence period. He wouldn't let me see it though. It's their closely guarded intellectual property. And I'm pretty sure Redbubble hasn't seen how close they were to ticking all the boxes. It's one of the companies Morgans worked with that really did come close to a perfect score, apparently. Ivor did highlight some of the positive aspects of the company leading up to the IPO. In all technology companies, there's no one whiz-bang reason why something works. Um, I think it had just been the cumulative effort um, by the company over the previous four to five years to improve the consumer experience um, and uh, to invest 
uh, basically in more product. Uh, so the number of formats you could buy, they really worked hard on expanding the number of formats you could you could um, uh, buy their product in. You know, initially it might have been a T-shirt and a coffee mug, and I think by the time... Um, uh, by the time we were ready to float them, there were there were, I think there was like twenty seven different product formats you could buy a red bubble image in, and of course there were some frustrations too. Well, one of the the difficulties was getting a handle on the competitive landscape. Um, you know they do have a lot of competitors around the world, and you can't just pick up the phone and ring those people and say how are things going in your marketplace. Um, you know the moment you told them you're doing some work for Redbubble, the, the 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 phone would get slammed in your face. So you don't have ready access as you might have in some other industries where you can ring competitors and talk to them. With this underway, I was curious whether the IPO process, with all of its detail and involvement from both Redbubble and outside companies, did it feel like that in initiating the process? it had itself got away, become something that was just happening bit by bit rather than constantly being affected by the senior team at Redbubble. Martin explains. Not really. Uh, and, the, and the reason why I didn't completely was, or, was, uh, or largely no was because we had a lot of control on it. We had a very, I've got a very strong CFO in Chris Nunn uh, who's done it a number of times before. Richard Causey is a, has had been a background as a very senior merchant banker, so he'd seen it before, and I'd seen it at least through Looksmart before. And also things like the writing of the prospectus, we took that on almost wholly ourselves. So we felt like we had control of it. The one bit which we didn't have control of was actually in the roadshow and the writing up of the investors. You know, These were people who had never spoken to before. And when we listed, I had no understanding of what the institutional investors were. We had no IR strategy at all you know and we and it was and and we had no you know all my experience around investor relations had been to do with private sector investors uh, and and i hadn't realized how completely different they are had no understanding of what was the drivers of institutional investors or any of those things so that's all something we've learned post ipo so that was the one area which we didn't have visibility which was called the building of the book I had no real understanding of what that was and what process was going on during that time. Um, and so that was the area. Which, and, that, to tell you, and to be honest, that's actually probably the most important of the whole thing, of, of, of it all. So in, in answer to your question, yes. Uh, but I didn't also, yes, it did, it did feel like it was out. Of, it didn't feel like it was out of control because I didn't know what I didn't know. So a whole, you know, the most important aspects of going on, I didn't even have any visibility into. So I would have felt out of control if I I'd known that I was, but I didn't know that I was, I don't think. And since the IPO, there's been a bit of movement in who owns chunks of Redbubble in institutional investor circles. Martin again. We spent the next year getting an entire new... We turned over almost our entire institutional investor base. Not quite, but we had a few who helped, a few really important institutional investors, but we took almost... we took. It's taken us, you know, the better part of... Well, getting on for now for up to two years to get a, a strong set of institutional investors who genuinely understand the business. You know, Redbubble, it's, you know, it's 2018 now. Uh, you know, in 2016... You know, we when we listed, we're still in the stage of institu- Australian institutional investors still beginning to understand what it is to be a technology company. Now they have no real reason to know that. 
you know, it's I, I believe it's less than two percent of the entire ASX is a technology-based company uh, versus over twenty percent for the US. So, you know, most of our institutional investors have very limited visibility. And they wouldn't understand how to value a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon or you know an Atlassian or a you know. So, it, it, understanding of technology, high technology growth stocks is very limited. Uh, it's getting better, but we we've been one of the first to really you know move those institutional investors along in their understanding and so we're having to carve our own territory along with you know a good group of companies now aconex was one of those until it delisted recently you know wise tech and uh, you know uh, kogan ourselves uh, and others martin also mentioned that the future fund billed as australia's sovereign wealth fund set up by then treasurer peter costello the portfolio update on the 30th of June 2018 stands at $146 billion. They've invested $200 million in Blackbird Ventures, a technology fund based in Sydney that's also invested in Redbubble and other Australian tech companies like Canva, Culture Amp, Safety Culture, Bug Crowd and more. He says that Australian institutional investors in the past haven't been too quick out of the gates with technology companies, but that's rapidly changing. The Australian institutions haven't had to do, do this because there haven't been enough technology stocks at play. So it's not been worth their while. Uh, I think that we, you know, they have, the Australian institutions have shown that once they do understand a, a business, that they are prepared to pay. It's not a question people do say, well, they, they undervalue them. We actually have seen in the case of Seek and REA uh, and car sales, and even WiseTech and WiseTech, that the institutions will value the companies uh, once they once they really get their heads around it. But it is it is it is it's an educational process. One of the journalists covering Redbubble's IPO and other technology stocks is Yolanda Redrup at the Australian Financial Review. Initially, Redbubble's price was up. And if you look at the graph since listing, you'll notice a big wide U shape probably closer to a dinner plate than a bowl. I remember chatting to one analyst, I think it was Ivor Reese Morgans, and he had been quite optimistic about the potential of the stocks, that it had quite a bit of upside. Um, I so after that I'd kind of remembered the next couple of months when the share price had traded really well on day one, it jumped you know around nine percent at close but that was the, its best day of trade for quite some time and I was watching it sort of continue on this downward trajectory for some time and I was like, oh, I can't really understand between how we got from such a positive day one to where it was sort of six months later. But I think there'd been this real issue in the investor community not really getting what it was all about and Martin made this comment to me once which I think really resonated was that he'd have a conversation with some of the analysts and investors around what it was the platform did but they didn't really get it until they went home and chatted to their kids and the kids were able to tell them you know why these independent designs were cool and why it was something they wanted to buy and it wasn't just a regular retail offering so there was a bit of excitement and interest in it at first but it took quite a while probably a better part of a you know over a year for the market to really start understanding what it was this company was about and why it wasn't just another e-commerce stock it had this downward trajectory and I kept watching and watching and watching it and I went back and I was like, oh my gosh, it hasn't traded higher than its issue price since day one. You know, Martin must be a bit concerned about that. But as a leader, he always emphasised that he wasn't concerned about the stock price. 
that wasn't the focus of the business. He was focused on building a good company and eventually the stock price would follow suit and sure enough that that's correct. Um, but I must say it did take a little while for that turnaround to happen and I think it's probably a testament to his team that they didn't change course or waver in their direction and when I spoke to Martin most recently I was like oh so what's what's changed what's the difference he's like nothing's changed they just get it now. I'll let you check out the stock price if you're interested just search for RBL Richard Causey again. In the end it's up to us to do two things tell our story clearly how we're building enduring value in the business and second deliver on what you promise that's all you can do you know you can be as frustrated as you like and it's not going to change a damn thing it's it's up to us to tell our story and deliver so that's all we're focused on I think that there's a range of different success models for tech companies. We have one model of success, which is sort of a little bit, a little bit imprinted, um, and which is a Silicon Valley success model, uh, which is you know this sort of this idea of a seed round, which is a friend and family round, which is typically defined by found, founding rounds, which is what sort of comes out of Silicon Valley: Series A, Series B, Series C. Uh, and whatever, and then you have maybe you have an IPO or a trade sale and exit. We, we coming back to where I started this part of the conversation, I had not thought about Redbubble in that way, and so the funding has been fit for purpose rather than to achieve the objectives of external venture capital firms. That funding model, by the way, is just achieves the objectives of the funders finances it doesn't necessarily achieve the objectives of the firm um, so we the reason why we raised money was because we had specific objectives we didn't have it wasn't driven we hadn't ever never had any um, any v- private equity or fund venture capital funding driving our decision to fund uh, the IPO was not driven by a need for a, an exit it was actually because there is no exit I've not sold any red bubble shares so it's not ex, no exit for me and no exit for most of our largest shareholders either uh, it is actually it was to raise capital and to provide some liquidity in the stock for some of the early shareholders but not for most of them um, so we, it, I don't think we're typical. I think that the, the reason why we're not typical is because it, we're not typical to Silicon Valley. I think we are more typical to an earlier notion of financing, uh, which probably, you know, some family firms or some firms which have, um, which, which are, you know, see themselves as creating something of, as I said, of, of enduring value. It, it, it has that model where, you know, you fund, you, you raise the money as you require for your objectives and nothing and, and not to try to achieve anything other than that. I'd asked the broad question early on in our interviews on the topic of advice for younger companies in Victoria. And it's quite fitting for an episode on the IPO and the final one of this series. My advice to younger Australian companies is don't uh, don't let your strategy be, t- be dictated by your finances or the funders. You know they don't. You know it's it's a myth to think. You know, and and I have a great deal of time for venture capitalists um, and and for and for um, and for finances in general. You know, I'm an investor in Blackbird Capital, um, but you you don't. You have get your strategy. Make you be clear about that, and clear what you're trying to achieve an objective, and then finance for that purpose, and not for anything else. Um, the problem is that the the biggest sort of just one stepping back one second is the biggest problem with the venture capital 
style of funding typically is it looks at a company as a project uh, and it has it's one of many projects which a VCs have got going and they actually don't in one way they they'd love all of them to succeed but if one of the projects doesn't succeed it's not necessarily a problem for the fund overall but for the founders it's not a project it's actually your company it's the only thing which you have um, and it, and as a project within the VC fund it's got a 10 year time frame typically whereas for the venture for the for the founder your company does not end at 10 years and so you've both you're you're out of sync with your investors both from a portfolio perspective and also from a timing perspective recognizing that going in is quite important and how you take financing is quite important because you don't want to get in a situation where the objectives of the fund or even the, of an individual strategic money can be just as bad any sort of money can be just as driving your company because they don't necessarily drive down the same same path and i had this in the early company with with look smart where the readers digest objectives as an investor were very different than our objectives for the company that was look smart yeah well, um, it, like that sounds, that sounds like a bit of a warning. It, it is a warning, and I, I think it comes back to you know being quite clear about what you want to achieve out of the objective. If your objective as a as a as a founder is completely aligned with the objective of some of the of the of your finances, in the sense that your objective is to fund something as quickly as possible, raise as much money as quickly as possible, and get out which is a most common model for, for venture capital, then that's fine. But if your actual objective is to grow a company over the long term, then you want to think more about that and how you would structure your financing to achieve that objective. Martin's been incredibly consistent in the long-term push for Redbubble. You might have heard him say that he hasn't sold any Redbubble shares. He has also said to me, and in numerous presentations I either watched online or went along to, that using the example of BHP, people often don't remember the founders of long-enduring companies and that Redbubble shouldn't be much different. This year, in 2018, he's stood aside as CEO. However, while the founders are still around and if people do remember them after they've left, the sentiment from the ecosystem is to celebrate them more than we currently do here in Australia. Redbubble strikes a powerful and lasting chord with its staff. The community it fostered and grew, the customers and its financial backers, most visibly through the company's convictions and its soul. Artists really can't escape the heart of the company. Once you've uploaded work, your experience there is truly put at the centre. It's two phrases that typify this. One, the old that was on the banner at the ASX, we stand for artists, and the current mission statement that Redbubble is creating the world's largest marketplace for independent artists bringing more creativity into the world. Bringing more creativity into the world, it's a phrase I've heard so many times while reporting this story. They resonate easily with those who cross paths with the company. There's evidence in so many respects. Just the office, the attitude, the court cases, the public statements, the IPO, and the actions of the founders. Natalie Tyler wouldn't have been in the first 11 had things been much different. It's not a... A bunch of people that had a great idea that there was a gap in the market and an opportunity to you know make some cash it's it's you know it's not that at all and I think that's I mean I would have left a long time ago if that was the case I don't think I would be sitting here talking to you if that was the case and I I I think as we headed towards the IPO I think there was always these these thoughts in the back of people's mind especially people who've been with the company for a long time was like okay how does this change who we are and what we stand for and how does this change 
what the business feels like day to day and the decisions that we make. And we had to make some some tough decisions and we were um, definitely changed the way that we had to conduct ourselves as a business. You know, we had to do a lot more compliance and reporting and that kind of stuff. But that's fine as long as you don't lose your soul and, and we haven't lost our soul. And so as long as we've still got a soul, I'll stick around. And that's it for this season. Thanks for listening to Scale Up Season 2, all about Redbubble from LaunchVic, founded and still headquartered right here in Melbourne. For more information about creating a startup in Victoria like Redbubble have, go to launchvic.org. LaunchVic is Victoria's startup ecosystem development agency helping to build the infrastructure for entrepreneurs and startups in the state. Get onto the website for more information, events and studies, much like the one used in reporting this series, a review of Melbourne's digital marketplaces. LaunchVic.org or check the show notes for links. A couple of stats just to hit home the size of Redbubble these days. Over 270,000 artists are selling work. Over 100 million in artist earnings since foundation. More than 14 million unique pieces of content generating an estimated billion plus stock keeping units through all the products available on the site these days and sales to every corner of the earth. All of this based in Collins Street, Melbourne, not far from the Melbourne Town Hall. There are plenty of people to thank in making this series and in no particular order, Martin Hosking for the hours of his patience, Paul Vanzella, Richard Causey, Natalie Tyler, Natasha Scarno, Ed Redman, Anna Christina, Barry Newstead, Russell Greenwood, everyone who answered the door at the Redbubble reception, artist in residence Ali Chung, Xavier Rosso, Xavier Shea, Anu Dia and Karina Davis in the San Francisco office, Michael Gallett at HC Pro in Horsham, Kate Tawney at the State Library of Victoria, Dr. Kate Cornick, CEO of Launch Vic, Andrew Moss in Sydney, Steve Ledbetter on St Kilda Road at Cleminger, Collis Taid, founder of Envato, Ivor Reese at Morgan's, Yolanda Redrup at the Australian Financial Review, and Louise Dahl at Startup Grind for some video. I'm Courtney Carthy. Please leave a review and tell a friend about the show. And thanks again for listening to this series of Scale Up from LaunchVic.